Well, we're coming up to one of the more controversial parts of Revelation, not that there haven't been other controversial parts, but a, a section that uh, Christians have had some difference of opinion of over the, the centuries. But before we jump into the passage, uh, it would be helpful for us just to be reminded of the principle that we saw right at the very start of the, this book that tells us how to interpret the book. Verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now the ESV there has that phrase, he made it known. The Greek word there means uh, more than just making known. It's, It's a word that indicates Signs and symbols, so he made it known through giving uh, symbolic um, or signs. So we're told right from the very beginning that the visions that John sees throughout this book are to be taken symbolically, not literally. Each element of the visions are not the reality itself, but they point to the reality using symbols, we give an extra insight then into the spiritual nature of these realities. The the one common mistake that's made with the visions in Revelation is to take something within the vision that's described symbolically and to try and impose that on human history and then say, Therefore, if there's a period of time in the vision, then there will be exactly the same period of time in human history. We saw that, if you remember, with the use of three and a half years. It was also described as 42 months or 1,260 days. Remember that three and a half years reminded the Jews of the literal three and a half year period in 167 BC when the Roman, sorry, the Greek emperor came in and desecrated the temple and he slaughtered the Jewish people. And when the, after the three and a half years were over, the temple was rededicated, they, the Jews instituted the festival of Hanukkah where they commemorate that every year. So three and a half years became symbolic of great persecution and suffering. It doesn't mean that there will come a literal time of three and a half years when the world will go through what's been dubbed the Great Tribulation. We only need to speak to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world to realise that they've already been facing great Tribulation, and for a much longer period than three and a half years. So in our passage this morning, we shouldn't immediately assume that the time frame mentioned there, a thousand years, is referring to a literal period of 1,000 years in human history, any more than we believe that Satan will be bound literally with physical chains or thrown into a physical pit. If we understand the chains and the pit to be symbolic of Satan's defeat, then we need to be consistent 
and apply that symbolism right through the vision. Now I know saying that may cause a problem for some people who are convinced that there will be a thousand year period during which Jesus will reign on earth. Not, not just because of difference in interpretation but because for some people when they hear that claim that we should interpret Revelation symbolically, it can sound like we're just turning the Bible into a metaphor so that we don't need to take it seriously or believe it as the true word of God. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because the Bible is God's word given to us in human language in many different literary forms or genres, it's vital that we understand the literary form of the book that we're reading. Otherwise, we'll misunderstand it and we'll actually miss what God is saying to us through it. We, we know, don't we, we don't read a love poem in the same way that we read the instruction manual for our TV. Well, I hope you don't. We don't read a novel in the same way that we read our electricity bill. Similarly, we don't read Revelation in exactly the same way that we might read a Gospel or the Book of Acts or the Book of Romans. It's not a linear historical narrative like Acts. It's not a book of systematic doctrine like Romans. Rather, it's apocalyptic the name for a literary form designed to reveal spiritual truths about reality through symbols given in dreams and visions. So when we read it that way, without imposing on it our modern frameworks, we actually show more respect for the book and we are enabled to more clearly hear him speak through it. So, as we've seen, this final section of Revelation, the seventh vision, opens with the declaration and the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That means that what follows in the vision isn't a sequence of end time events to put in our calendar, but something that will help us understand the nature of the relationship between Jesus the bridegroom and his bride, the church, albeit tied to one big climactic event in history, the appearing of Jesus as the judge of all, when he'll bring a conclusion to this chapter of history and usher in the next chapter of eternity and the new creation. So as we saw last week, During the betrothal time of a wedding, a marriage, once the marriage covenant had been signed and sealed, the bride and the bridegroom would make their preparations. The bride in her family's home would prepare her wedding gown and the bridegroom would be preparing a place in his father's house. We heard the announcement, verses 7 and 8. The marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. That was the righteous deeds of the saints that make the church beautiful in the eyes of 
her bridegroom. Then last week, we saw the bridegroom himself riding out of heaven, going to collect his bride and to bring her to his father's house. Now, in this passage, we hear what the bridegroom has done to make sure everything is in place. We saw him as this victorious, priestly, kingly, prophetic warrior. And so what we now hear about what he's accomplished is his victories, which are announced by these two angels. Now, the nature of Jesus' kingship is spelled out in Psalm 110. It's the most quoted or referred to psalm in the New Testament. Notably, it's quoted here at the end of Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and he quotes Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know that for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So Peter is saying, the Lord whom my Lord spoke to, Psalm 110, that's Jesus. After his resurrection and during the 40 days of teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God, Uh, They reached the end of those 40 days and he said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And as we confess in the words of the Apostles' Creed, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. So in this in-between time, this betrothal time, He's not sitting around doing nothing, just waiting until he has to spring back into action and return at the end of history. No, as the bridegroom, he is getting things ready. He's constantly at work in this world with his Father through the Spirit, making his enemies his footstool. Now, we were already introduced earlier in Revelation to these enemies the false, unholy trinity of the dragon and the two beasts. So let's briefly remember what those characters represented in that fourth vision. The first great victory or resounding defeat by Jesus is of the beast and the false prophet down there in verse 19. The beast here, remember, is the beast who came out of the sea and which represented the might and the power of Rome, along with all the other human kingdoms that rise up and try to usurp the rule of God in this world. And we saw that for the first readers of Revelation, that power was embodied in the person of the Emperor Nero, whose name was symbolised by the number 666. He was a false Christ. 
But for other generations since, there have been other false Christs who try to use the might of the sword or political power to subdue, to oppress and particularly to oppose and destroy the church and to stop the gospel being proclaimed. Now back then we saw that our response to that first beast was the endurance and faith of the saints. Faithful endurance. Not trying to engage or to fight against the beast, which makes sense when we see that the victory over the beast will be accomplished by Jesus, not by us. Jesus called us to love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. A response that can only come if we know that only God can deliver us from our enemies. Only Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, can change the heart of our persecutors from hating him to loving him. Faithful endurance. Then we see the false prophet there in verse 20. Another title for the second beast who came out of the earth. And that beast symbolised false gospels and those who preach them, which try to distract and drag away and deceive the saints from their pure devotion to Christ. False gospels that cause us to turn to look to idols or to worldly methods and authorities instead of seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This was the false Holy Spirit who instead of making the risen Jesus known to us leads people astray to worship false Christs. We saw back then that our response to this was to be wisdom. This calls for wisdom, seeking to be established in the truth of God's word and being discerning between false gospels and the true gospel. So together these two beasts speak of the human enemies of Jesus, the secular and the religious powers that work together as part of Satan's strategy to attack the church, to dethrone Jesus and to destroy the Father's plan to have his kingdom established. So this scenario that's played out here in verses 17 to 21 is a a graphic portrayal that communicates the conclusive and final defeat of all of the rebellious kingdoms of the world. Battles in the ancient world were carried out in a very different way to how we hear about wars being fought today. Most often they would be fought on an open plain or a valley and the adversaries would be gathered on either side of the plain in view of each other, ready and waiting for one of the captains to give the signal to advance and attack. Then they would meet in the middle where the fighting would 
take place and they would fight until one of them was completely slaughtered or retreated. Then the bodies of the defeated army would be left, stripped of their weapons and their armour, to become food for the wild animals and the the carrion eaters, crows and vultures who would eat the dead, rotting bodies clean and leave the bones. It's It's a horrific image for sure. It's an image of complete and utter defeat and the humiliation, knowing that if you've lost the battle, you'd never be buried at home by your loved ones, but you'd basically be cursed. You'd be food for the wild animals. Now we need to know something, notice something very important about this scene. It's the greatest anticlimax of history. There's this great build-up as the kings of the earth gather with their mighty armies, led by this great and terrifying beast, but then we hear nothing of the battle. It's all over before it begins. The rider on the white horse captures the beasts and throws them into the lake of fire and the armies are slain by the sword of his mouth. They don't even get a chance to fight. Their foolishness is shown up. Their presumption that they would ever be successful in trying to defeat the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. This scenario is just like many others throughout the pages of Scripture when a battle which humanly seems impossible to win becomes a victory as the Lord steps in and fights the battle on behalf of his people. The best known of these, although maybe the most misunderstood one, is David and Goliath. Israel were in a standoff with the Philistines and their champion, the great giant Goliath. And they weren't doing too well. You can picture them on that plane, on either side, waiting for the battle. It was a practice in those days for warring peoples to settle their conflicts in a way that avoided too much bloodshed. They would each send out a champion to fight to the death on behalf of their armies. Whichever champion won would win victory for his people and it would save a lot of time and mess. The problem was Israel had no one to match this giant who was two and a a half metres tall. So the Israelites were trembling and fearful, facing the certain prospect of being enslaved by their enemies. Their only hope was that God might send them a Messiah, someone anointed with the Spirit, enabled to do with God's power that which none of them were able to do. And that's where David came in. David defeated Goliath in the weakness of having 
no armour, no sword, and only a few small stones. This was the sign that he was truly Israel's king and saviour. So David came against Goliath in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Or in other words, I am the Lord's instrument by which he will defeat you and save his people. It wasn't really the stone that killed Goliath. It was the word of God in David's mouth. Even if David had just come up and blown on Goliath, the Lord would have struck him down. Now, contrary to popular ideas, in this story, David doesn't represent you or me. The ones with whom we are to identify in this story is the fearful Israelites who know they're lost unless God sends a champion to defeat our enemies. David represents Jesus, the son whom God promised David that he would send, who would build a house for the Lord and would sit on his throne in an everlasting kingdom. When Jesus came, God made flesh, the Spirit was upon him and the Spirit led him eventually to the battlefield. But it was the battlefield of Calvary where he waged war against our great enemies of sin and death and the devil. He didn't defeat them with a sword or a club but in the weakness and the shame of the cross in the name of his father. So all of the accusation now that the devil has to level against God's people has been done away with. As Jesus, the son of David, fought on our behalf. The accuser has been beheaded with his own sword. So Jesus' victory then over death displayed in his resurrection is the guarantee that he is our Messiah and our Saviour. That no matter what giants may come our way and try to intimidate us, they're already rendered powerless. They're defeated. They're shamed. They're cursed in the cross. They're unable to snatch us out of the Father's hand. All of these impossible battles through the Bible that the Lord won for his people foreshadowed the greatest victory that Jesus won at the cross, a victory that will be seen fully when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of God and of his Christ. Paul described this scenario in 2 Thessalonians. Then when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The lawless one here, that's a term that's equivalent to antichrist or the beast. All of the arrogance, all of the pride of the human race in rebellion against God's authority is brought to nothing as the Lord Jesus simply blows on them. Their great might 
is exposed as being like a feather in face of the great authority of Jesus. Well, the second resounding victory is the defeat of the dragon here in 21-3, representing all of Jesus' spiritual enemies. Now, we've come to a chapter that, as I said, has been the focus of controversy over the years to the point where people's eschatology or their view of the last things uh, has been labelled according to how they interpret the thousand years, also known as the millennium. Very briefly, a pre-millennialist believes that when Jesus returns, he will reign for 1,000 years on earth from Jerusalem. And at the end of the 1,000 years, there will be the final judgment. In other words, Jesus will return before or pre-millennial. Now, the most popular form of that today is called dispensationalism. You don't have to worry about remembering these big words. Dispensationalism is a view that came about around the end of the 19th century and that believes that the Jewish people, the nation of Israel and the, the temple in Jerusalem will be restored before Jesus' return. That's pre-millennialism. Then a post-millennialist believes that before Jesus returns, there will be an extended time of a thousand years or at least a long period of time when the gospel will triumph in the world and all nations and all cultures will be transformed by the word of Christ as he reigns from heaven. And then Jesus will return for the final judgement after or post the millennium. Then an amillennialist believes that the thousand years isn't to be taken literally but is symbolic of the time between Jesus' first coming and his return. Now, See how we run into problems when we take the symbols of the vision and try to superimpose it on human history and try and work out times and dates. Church history is littered with people who have been embarrassed because they've tried to work out timelines based on Bible prophecies or tried to set dates for Jesus' return only to find that the dates come and go with nothing happening. We also run into difficulty with what it says at the end of verse 3 in which Satan is released for a little while and that begs the question, why, why would God release Satan again after a thousand years of Jesus' perfect reign? But I'll say that just as we did with the symbol of three and a half years, we're not supposed to take the time frames in this vision literally, but to see what they represent. So regardless of what view you hold about the millennium, and I say you can hold any of these three views and be a Christian. Uh, the, your view of how the end times work out 
it doesn't define whether you're a Christian or not. But regardless of which view you hold, whether you see it as literal thousand years or not, you still have to ask and answer the question, well, what does it mean? What is the purpose of a thousand years? Why a thousand? What does that number signify? What does it tell us about Jesus Christ, who is the centrepiece of this book and therefore the subject of every chapter in it? See what happens in the context of this vision, what happens in this thousand years. Satan is bound in chains and thrown into the bottomless pit. And as we'll see next week in verse 4, we're told that the saints come to life and reign with Christ. So, while this is most commonly spoken of as referring to the reign of Christ, it doesn't actually say that, does it? It says it's about Satan being defeated and about the saints reigning with Christ. It's a statement actually not so much about Jesus as it is about us being restored by Jesus to our creational design as rulers over creation. It's about the undoing of Eden where the first man and woman submitted themselves to obey the word of the serpent instead of ruling over it and the other creatures as they should have. So the time frames in the vision are symbolic not of a time frame in history, they're symbolic of a difference in power between the saints who are reigning with Christ and Satan who has been defeated and bound. The word for little in a little while is micron. The word we today use to refer to one millionth of a metre, the size of the smallest bacteria. It means something so small you can't even measure it. So it's a picture of the victory of Jesus and his people over Satan. Jesus' victory given to us so that we may reign with him. Now having said all that, I hope you can see that if we were to match the thousand years with a period in history, I believe it best fits with that amillennial view. Go back to that quickly. The amillennial view. The time between Jesus' first and second comings. Since Satan was judged and defeated and bound at the cross and resurrection of Jesus and the saints currently reign with Christ. We've been raised up and we've been seated with him in heavenly places as Ephesians 2 tells us. We're not waiting for Jesus to reign because he already, he told us he has all authority in heaven and on earth. We're not waiting for the kingdom of God to come because it's already come in Jesus. We're not waiting for Satan's power to be broken because he was thrown down when Jesus bore our sin at the cross and took away his power of accusation. 
What we are waiting for in this betrothal period is for everything to be put in place so that Jesus' reign will become manifest and will become established in all of creation. When we sing songs and hymns about Jesus reigning, do you actually believe the words that you're singing? Do you actually believe that Jesus is Lord over all? And do you realise the implications of those words for you as a member of his bride, the church? Romans 5.17 tells us, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We need to ask the Spirit to open our eyes to see the reality of who we are in the risen Lord Jesus. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. His decisive victory over all the dark powers, all the evil powers of this earth and of heaven, his victory over them is our victory. We need to constantly remind ourselves of that so that we don't shrink back in fear when it seems that death is reigning. So lay hold of the victory you have in Christ. Receive the power that he's given you through the Holy Spirit to be to flee from sin and to pursue his glory. Don't be afraid of the devil when he tries to accuse you. Remember, his power has been stripped and there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. Don't be discouraged. Don't be angry when it seems like the world is winning because this world has a use-by date. So rise up. Go out in the power of the Spirit to be Christ's ambassadors in this world.